morning and welcome to Rising. We have a GOP debate to recap, so let's get right to it. <laughs> All right. Well, Robbie, the top five 2024 GOP presidential frontrunners, save, of course, former President Donald Trump, met on the debate stage last night in Miami for the third time this cycle. One of the night's biggest moments came when Vivek Ramaswamy broke the fourth wall and went after GOP chairwoman Ronna McDaniel. I think there's something deeper going on in the Republican Party here, and I am upset about what happened last night. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We have a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020, 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. And frankly, look, the people there are cheering for losing in the Republican Party. Think about who's moderating this debate. This should be Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. We'd have 10 times the viewership asking questions that GOP primary voters actually care about and bringing more people into our party. You think the Democrats, I and mean, we've got Christian Welker here, you think the Democrats would actually hire Greg Gutfeld to host a Democratic debate? They wouldn't do it. And so the fact of the matter is, I mean, Christian, I'm going to use this time because this is actually about you in the media and the corrupt media establishment. Ask you the Trump-Russia collusion hoax that you pushed on this network for years. Was that real or was that Hillary Clinton made up disinformation? Answer the question. Go. Now, as you may have guessed, that wasn't Vivek's only fiery moment from last night. Here he is stoking the coals of his feud with Nikki Haley. Well, I, I, I want to laugh at why Nikki Haley didn't answer your question, which is about looking at families in the eye. In the last debate, she made fun of me for actually joining TikTok while her own daughter was actually using the app for a long time. So you might want to take care of your family first. Leave my daughter out of your voice. Adult daughter. The next generation of Americans are using it. And that's actually the point. You have her supporters crapping her up. That's fine. Here's the truth. You're just the easy scum. answer. Ramaswamy later hit Haley's hawkish approach to diplomacy. Let's watch. The matter is the Republican Party is not that much better. You have the likes of Nikki Haley, who stepped down from her time at the UN. Bankrupt or in debt is, was her family. Then she becomes a military contractor. She joins the board of Boeing and otherwise, and is now a multimillionaire. So I think that that's wrong when Republicans do it or Democrats do it. That's the choice we face. Do you want a leader from a different generation who's gonna put this country first? Or do you want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? All right, Mr. In which case, we've got two of them on stage Mr. Ramaswamy, thank you. Senator, uh, Senator Scott. Then later in the debate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was pressed on his crackdown on anti-Israel student groups, or perhaps better framed, pro-Palestine student groups. Let's take a listen. I have friends here in Florida who... Their kids do not feel safe even going to university campus at all outside of the state of Florida. You have Jewish students fleeing for their lives at Cooper Union. Joe Biden should have the Department of Justice on these college campuses and holding the universities accountable for civil rights violations. When you have, you should not have money going to these places. I already acted in Florida. We had a group, Students for Justice of Palestine. They said they are common cause with Hamas. They said, we're not just in solidarity. This is what we are. We deactivated them. We're not going to use Tate tax dollars. Ramaswamy answered DeSantis's stance on that. Let's watch his response. 
anti-Semitism to irrelevance. These kids, they have no idea what the heck they're even talking about when they're siding with Hamas over Israel. They are fools. But I also want to caution here, if we go the direction of Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley, with whom I respectfully disagree on this issue, pro-censorship, telling student groups to disband, mark my words, soon they will say if you question a vaccine and its side effects, you're a bioterrorist. Soon they will say that if you show up at a school board meeting, you're a domestic terrorist. Soon if they say that J6 prisoners should be released, you're an insurrectionist terrorist. So that's where this road ends. We don't quash this with censorship because that creates a worse underbelly. We quell it through leadership by calling it out. These university administrators have lost their way, and we need leadership at the top in the United States of America that restores our founding values and that has no place for this kind of anti-Semitic hate. That's so interesting, Ramaswamy there breaking with Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and really all of the rest of the candidates who are very for cancel culture and censoring and students uh, for their anti-Israel views. Um, Rama, uh, specifically on the, what the DeSantis order for the college student protesters in Florida, that was something uh, we, I think he first addressed on our show when we interviewed him, because it was fresh in the news cycle, and he said he, he hadn't heard yet about the DeSantis order, but it sounded like something he would oppose, and there he was uh, reaffirming that he does disagree with it. Um, the rest of them were, you know, very very keen to, I don't know, sick the exact forces of cancel culture that they decry in all other situations. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that you have the majority of the Republican field willing to stand up there and say colleges should be defunded if students at those colleges uh, protest an ongoing genocide, that colleges should be defunded uh, if Jewish students on campus feel unsafe. I have to ask the question, would you also say you should defund colleges and send in the DOJ if black students at, a, at say, one of the Florida schools that Ron DeSantis has um, promoted his own ideological agenda at and canceled African-American studies programs at, if they feel unsafe, should those schools be defunded if they receive federal funding? Should you send the DOJ in to investigate those schools? Why would we schools? want Biden's DOJ probing student comfort and, and more, and speech moral, levels, how would that be helpful? And moreover, how are we deciding whose students' right. safety is of concern? Again, we've spent now a decade decrying the fragility of the American student. The right has done exactly that. Yeah. And they said to black students, gay students, people across the identity spectrum, Latino students, women students, that we shouldn't have additional Title IX protections, that all of that stuff was ridiculous. Why they, they yelled at women for quoting rape statistics about how often sexual assault was at campus. All of those things were seen as evidence of this generate the young generation's inappropriate insensitivity. So I think all of the people on that stage have to ask the question why they feel so differently about Jewish students. Right. And Ramaswamy was, I think, very right to point out how this could so easily—it it has already in the past been weaponized against people with contrarian views all over the place. We, if conservatives have some contrarian views on exactly the subjects he was mentioning, it just seems like um, very, very foolish um, direction to take. So everything. what do you make of the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy took, I think, the right position on that uh, with respect to student censorship on the campus? The right position on but couple then, things. But then as absolutely gung-ho about not just censoring TikTok on an individual level, but canceling the app altogether. Yeah, uh, there have been very few people um, in really in either party. Banning TikTok is a very bipartisan and seemingly cross-ideological um, uh, 
cause right now. Um, I've been glad to see Senator Rand Paul was one person who stood up and said that this absolutely seems like a speech issue and giving the government this power would be very bad. Um, it's frustrating to me that um, that this social—when they recognize how all of the pressures on social media companies that our government has done has been bad for speech, and now you want to give our government even more power to police social media or ban companies nilly-willy. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a frustrating blind spot for me. Even people like Josh Halley, I mean, all of these people are calling for a TikTok ban, and it yeah. especially seems pernicious because these calls have ramped up in the context of TikTok being a place where so many young people obviously are, and young people disproportionately having sympathy with Freeing, freeing Palestine has caused a lot of folks now to say, specifically, we need to ban TikTok because it, it's only conceivable that people on that app would have a bias toward the interests of the the human rights interests of Palestinians because somehow they're being diluted by China. And it's giving it's giving Russian misinformation is causing people to want to vote for Donald Trump. It's the exact same thing. And the fact that all of these people, even right there in the clip, one of the clips we watched, Vivek Ramaswamy called out Ronan Daniel, uh, called it out the network rather for doing all that Russia hoax misinformation, turning around and doing the exact same thing about young kids on TikTok who want to free Palestine is really a remarkable about face. Yeah, let's talk more about uh, how Ramaswamy went after the RNC and the moderators and said, you know, that Tucker, Elon, and Joe Rogan should host a debate. Obviously, I think Vivek draws support from that crowd of younger um, online right-leaning people um, and speaks very well to what they're concerned about and is absolutely right about the out-of-touch nature of a lot of Republican elites, and again, I agree with him on what he was calling out the media for. My only issue, though, is, you know, he's saying Rana McDaniel took over and then everything started going bad for the Republicans. Was there maybe some other Republican political figure who has loomed very large over the party since 2017 <laughs> who maybe possibly would deserve some share of the blame for what has happened? That's a really good point. Name rhymes with grump. Yeah. The, he who should not be named at this debate. It was interesting. They didn't even try to pin them down on one of those, why are you better than Trump questions. There, I mean, there, there was mm -hmm. one that was built into the question, but not like, give me a direct answer as to what you think about Trump not being here, or is he a coward, or anything like that. And I think it's because they clearly refused to answer it when those efforts were made at earlier debates. So the moderator question, I thought, was kind of, it, it, felt, it felt like a pure stunt. Isn't it always the case that these networks hire people from their network to moderate the debate? He wants them to have broken from tradition and gotten Tucker Carlson and Elon mm -hmm. Musk and who was the third one? Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Or something. Okay, that well, that's just, it's a clear pander. Maybe it works. Yeah. Whatever, fine. He can say it. Framing it, younger younger moderators that are closer to uh, what the public wants. All of those people are older than Nikki Haley, who he very specifically called out as a person in a different generation as him who doesn't know how to meet the needs I mean, I think it's of not, the public. They're like 12 years apart. Well, sure, but I, I think <laughs> their audiences are, well, Nikki Haley doesn't have an audience. They understand, I mean, Nikki Haley is, her, her thinking is older in that it comes from the neoconservative pre-Trump wing of what the Republican Party was, where people like Tucker and Elon and to some extent Joe Rogan, even though I don't think he really even 
classifies himself as a conservative, are speaking to these newer, more populist, more anti-interventionist energies on the right, and it would be helpful to hear from them. You know, we heard from Hugh Hewitt was one of the moderators. He's a conservative. He's kept asking them, like, specifically how many ships they're going to build. <laughs> like, he, he was playing Axis and Allies and wanted to know where they were. I mean, that is not... I'm not going to say that's not—those aren't important questions, but well, it, it seems very, fairly granular to I, me. I agree, but it also was pretty revealing how there was complete unanimity uh, across the board, if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong. Everyone right. said more ships. Even the people like Vivek right. Ramaswamy, who hold themselves out as being anti-interventionists, right. limited war powers, all of those kinds of things, when asked specifically— Right. He says, we need to build more well, ships. And that is, where a that is how a Tucker could have been useful, because he could have— he could have probed that enthusiasm for more military robustness, more sending ships everywhere from a conservative but less interventionist America First perspective. The yeah. America First perspective is just totally absent. You know, they're talking. They're talking about all all about Israel's defense. All about Vivek. You know. Told the truth on Ukraine, the rest didn't. Um, but it was it was a lot about other countries' securities and issues, and I, I was I was not hearing because they were not prompted to do so. How how does this matter for the safety and security of the American people? Right, and I just I don't want it to let I don't want it to get lost in the weeds. Vivek Ramaswamy, just like everyone on that stage, is rooting to invest more in spending American tax dollars on our military. There is no difference between saying I want to send these weapons to Israel that it cost this much money in, in a $105 billion package and saying, I want to invest in all of these American ships that are going to go and do our policing around the world. It's still American tax dollars being funneled through these um, defense contractors, these private companies, and the money going off the door, having an inflationary effect, driving up the cost of raw goods, materials that are used to build those weapons, driving up the cost of oil that is used to build those weapons, and not positively impacting the interests of the American people. And I do think folks like Vivek Ramaswamy, who claim to be anti-interventionist and claim to be anti-war, except for Israel, apparently, need to be really pressed on those questions. Before we wrap, I do think we have to weigh on one of the spicier moments of the night where, again, Vivek Ramaswamy um, said to Nikki Haley that she needed to take care of her own family with respect, first, with respect to this, this TikTok question, accusing her seemingly of not being a—being uh, inconsistent, perhaps not being a conscious enough parent, given that her own child was on uh, TikTok while she was saying that she wanted to ban it. The audience didn't seem to really love that remark. Do you think that he's going to get very far with those kind of jabs at Nikki Haley and the gender dynamics there, but also the comment about, uh, do we want Dick Cheney in three-inch heels? I Isn't thought he was talking about Ron DeSantis there. <laughs> Um, look, it would have been a better job. He's an abrasive person. I think that's clear. He's uh, he's very high energy, and um, I don't know how people perceive when he comes off with Nikki Haley. I think a lot of I think Nikki Haley fans agree that he, what did she say? He's scum and hate him, and he has made it very personal. Um, also, though, he does have serious policy differences with her that, and and some of those I would take his side on. So. You know, at the end of the day, they're running for president. They're not running to be best friends with each other, and it does get personal. It's certainly gotten way more personal on the debate stage with Trump in the past than it is even between the two of them. So I think, I suspect Republican voters know that this is a battle for, like, the future of the country, and not that absolutely everything is fair game, but that they're still keeping it at the level of 
discourse. Um, now, it doesn't, now, I don't think it matters that her daughter is on TikTok. I mean, I don't think it matters that anyone's on TikTok, I do frankly. wonder how women, and I'm sure there'll be some exit, you know, viewer mm -hmm. information about this, but I do wonder how women received that comment and the three-inch heel comment. I can't think of another moment in a presidential debate where someone has impugned, even implicitly, the parenting of another person on stage. And the fact that it happened to ha have, uh, happen with a a woman, when women's parenting is often called into question when they're professionals in the workforce in the way that men aren't. The only other conversation I remember about someone's child was this kind of funny moment during the 2020 debates where Bill de Blasio says, I have a black child, so I understand this. And Cory uh, Corey Booker is like, I don't... Wait, Wait, I'm a, I'm a black man. I am a black man because <laughs> he doesn't have kids. But that, that's as close as I can think of of people's like parenting even coming up. If I were to give Nikki Haley advice, um, I would say she should probably hit him back because he he sort of he uh, impugned how she made her money too, mm -hmm. and, and she should get into. Everyone lets that go with Vivek. It's there's, crazy. There's right. There's some far, there's pharmaceutical connections yes, issues a, to get into. It seems pretty well reported out that it was a, as a, was a grift that his mom, who is a doctor, a, a geriatric mm -hmm. psychi psychiatrist, I believe, they basically found some uh, psychi psychiatric drugs, some drug for old people that failed some clinical trial or wasn't looking very auspicious. They bought it, rebranded it, repackaged it, went on like Kramer and sold the drug. The stock went up. They dumped it. And it wasn't actually a useful product. It was a pump and dump scheme, pretty plainly on its face. And so the idea that he is going to impute how anybody else makes money, I agree with his critique of Nikki Haley. But are you the one with the standing to make it? Yeah. All right. We will continue talking about this later in the show. And we'll have more rising in just a minute. We've got some breaking news this morning. Israel has agreed to daily four-hour humanitarian pauses in northern Gaza to allow civilians to flee. Now, this shared by the White House this morning. They say there will be no military operations in these areas over the duration of the pause and that this process is starting today. Now, meanwhile, a new poll also out just today finds that almost half of Democrats disapprove of President Biden's response to the Israel-Hamas war. According to the new poll by the Associated Press, NORC Center for Public Affairs, Democrats are less supportive of Biden's response than they were in a similar poll conducted in August, when 57 percent of Democrats approved of the response and 40 percent disapproved. Mm. In an interview with Politico, Ehud Omar, the former prime minister of Israel, accused current leader Bibi Netanyahu of suffering a nervous breakdown, causing him to miscalculate over Gaza. He accuses Bibi of being a danger to Israel. According to a new report in Huffington Post, families of hostages taken by Hamas are urging Israel and the U.S. to prioritize bringing their loved ones home over seeking revenge. Here at home, congressional staffers staged a walkout in protest of their boss's rejection of a ceasefire in Gaza. Meanwhile, over 100 Democrats on Capitol Hill pinned a letter Wednesday to President Biden calling on him to protect Palestinians in the United States. They want the president to implement temporary protections that are intended to shield immigrants from returning to countries torn by natural disasters or war. Um, so what do you make of these uh, four-hour humanitarian pauses, um, specifically framed as enabling folks to flee? Well, I think it's interesting to show that we were able to exert some influence over the Israeli government. Um, I'm sure this four-hour pauses are not going to make a meaningful difference or 
frankly, satisfy um, people who are very upset about the bombing campaigns and think that they should end entirely and there should be a ceasefire. But it does show you that maybe we can get more, uh, more of a, uh, of a commitment to implement whatever policies we want from the Netanyahu government if we really try, or maybe this is just trying to give the USA like, well, okay, here, fine, we're doing four-hour pauses. It doesn't really make a difference, but we're doing them. Um, you know, if, if the region is still being torn apart by bombings, it's not, it's, I mean, good that they're going to get some humanitarian supplies in, but it doesn't really seem like it's getting at the real problem. I'm interested by this poll. Now, obviously, the way we framed it, if almost half of Democrats disagree, that still means, well, then more than half do agree, right? But the trajectory of how Democrats feel about how Biden's handling this is, you know, important and relevant to his approval um, ratings and his possible re-election. He needs to hold the entire coalition together to possibly get over the finish line next year. And if disaffected Democrats, including Arab Americans in Michigan and other places, are just dissatisfied, even if overall most Democrats still agree with what he's doing, that could be enough to cost him re-election. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting sort of tacit admission, this um, four hours a day to flee. One thing it brings to mind is that apparently there are maybe no four-hour gaps in the bombardment, and that's the conditions that the people of Gaza have been living under. It also brings to mind the early days when Israel averred that it was allowing people to flee um, down a humanitarian corridor. This word humanitarian gets attached to things that sometimes don't seem in retrospect very humanitarian, because what ended up happening, people who were fleeing along that very humanitarian corridor were also being bombed by the IDF. So I am curious to see whether or not there are useful humanitarian efforts that can be made during these pauses. There was a video that was circulating around yesterday showing members of the IDF commandeering a water tank, taking a water tank out of Gaza or from a community in Gaza at the same time that humanitarian efforts are trying to get water, clean water, into Gaza. People obviously don't have water to drink. People are experiencing all kinds of stomach problems because they're drinking mixtures of saline, salt, salt water, and other kinds of foodstuffs to try to make it go down more um, easily. There's no clean water to treat wounds. There are people, children with open burn wounds that are very prone to infection because of the sanitation issues, not to mention, obviously, that they don't have antiseptics and other kinds of medical supplies on offer. So obviously, it would be a benefit to this really um, despairing population if some humanitarian aid were to be able to get in. But it, it seems really counterintuitive to say, we're going to pause so that you can help around the margins while we immediately thereafter are going to keep bombing and being the cause of the humanitarian crisis in the first place. Right. And U.S. tax dollars are paying for both the bombing and the humanitarian right. effort. So we're <laughs> destroying things and then paying to rebuild them. We're, kill, we're maiming people and then paying for their treatment. We're starving people and then paying for their food. Um, is that really what is that really serving? Is that a good use of our funds? And is that serving American national security, which should be the point of our spending on foreign policy? Um, I think people will be increasingly dissatisfied. I think if people understood better that that was the reality, that this is being done, the, the weapons are, be, are the money we're, we give Israel, part, substantially, partially, and then also we are, the U.S. is the number one contributor to the aid fund. So we are on both sides of this. Why? Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting to hear the 
the family members of the hostages say they're not interested in revenge. They're not interested in this continued bombardment. They're more interested in getting their family members home. Uh, Hamas reported that 60 Israeli hostages have been killed by Israeli airstrikes so far. You know, who knows what those numbers are going to hold up. But even the possibility that Israel's own attacks could have been killing almost a quarter of all of the hostages that were taken in the first instance really asks, raises some interesting questions about, you know, we've been saying, well, do they do, does Israel value Palestinian lives, the innocent lives of people of Palestine? Well, do they value the innocent lives of the Israeli citizens who are uh, being captive, being held captive uh, in Gaza as well? What is actually the point of this if it is not to get the hostages back? And, and in, in all of the putting up of the posters and the, the empty dinner table set for hostage victims, is that ultimately performative? Not from the family members. I believe they're deeply invested in that. But is it are people weaponizing the hostages in a performative way when their policy advocacy is not at all tied to getting them home safely? Yeah, I mean, it's a very difficult situation. They're being held hostage, and the people holding them are you know, happy to go to the grave using them as shields, so I don't know what to do. Yeah, in fact, I'm glad you raised that. There was an editorial cartoon that was making a similar point in um, was it the Wall Street Journal uh, yesterday, and it, it caused a lot of controversy. I mean, it was a, it was a physical oh, manifestation, yeah, of exactly this argument that's being made, that ultimately all of the lives lost, whether they're the babies that are pictured there, or whether it's the woman, or whether it's these Israeli hostages themselves, which are obviously not pictured in this particular rendition, that it is somehow justifiable, I guess, if you look at that image and your response is to say, okay, well, to get the Hamas guy, we absolutely should gun down the four children and one woman that are affixed to him. I mean, it's, an, it's a really interesting question, and I think this cartoon was meant to make that, that, that argument that you're making. But I think a lot of people looked at it and said, well, it's actually illustrating why killing all of those innocents to get that one guy actually isn't a good policy approach. Well, we will continue to monitor updates in this situation, and we'll have more rising right after this. The White House freaked out at House Republicans after the House Oversight Committee issued subpoenas for Hunter and James Biden requesting President Joe Biden's son and brother appear for depositions as part of the investigation into the Biden family finances. That is all according to a committee spokesperson. The White House released a memo titled James Comer's latest effort to distract from House GOP failures with political attacks on the president and his family. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre also responded to the subpoenas, saying Republicans continue to double down on a baseless, baseless smear campaign against the president and his family instead of being focused on the American people's needs. What they're asking for, what is it that they truly want us to focus on? Oversight Committee Chair James Comer has raised questions about a personal check Joe Biden allegedly received from his brother James in 2018. The check obtained by the committee reportedly showed the words loan repayment, and according to documents provided to The Washington Post, the president transferred $200,000 to James in 2018. But Comer has continued to dispute that the check was, in fact, a loan repayment and is ready to question the Biden family about, quote, complicated financial transactions. Now, Comer also issued a subpoena for Hunter and James's business associate, Rob Walker, who, according to Fox News, worked on a joint venture called Sinohawk Holdings, which was meant to be a partnership with Chinese energy firm CEFC. 
Okay. So we're continuing to explore these, you know, financial transactions and connections to Chinese and Ukrainian interests. Um, you know, with the usual disclosure that we've not found any kind of smoking gun. Um, despite that, the Joe Biden's knowledge of Hunter Biden's business dealings, we're aware, go well beyond what he initially conceded. So there is a lot of suspicion there. We also reported last week that the FBI had heard from a number of uh, witnesses, uh, evidence givers, informants, about the Biden situa financial situation, and that that investigation was never centralized, and, and a lot of those tips were not followed up on to the satisfaction of, of the people working on it at the time. Uh, the check said it's a loan repayment. You know, what, what, I mean, what can we potentially find if at the end of the day, mm -hmm. one brother lends $200,000 to another and it's repaid? Yeah. No, nothing. I mean, what is, I'm just, I'm struggling to understand the implications of it here or what the connections are to any potential wrongdoing. Not that there couldn't be some wrongdoing elsewhere. I'm just really struggling to see how this, help me understand, maybe I'm missing something, how this particular check is a red flag. Um, it, it kind of feels like at this point that the committee is just, you know, is putting out a press release for every new financial transaction they uncover whether or not it looks particularly suspicious. Um, so the, the idea is that they wrote loan repayment on it to make it seem more legitimate than it potentially yeah. was, that they were doing a CYA, as it were? I think so. Okay. Well, it will be interesting for them to get testimony to those ends and figure something out. But I'm loath to agree with Karine Jean-Pierre these days, but it's hard to see this as something other than a distraction from the kinds of issues that the American people would like folks to focus on. That could also be said, obviously, of some of these Trump prosecutions. I don't deny that at all. But here we are in the middle of a, you know, economic downturn that Americans are feeling, uh, two wars that Janet Yellen says we can't afford, but our national debt suggests otherwise. And uh, we have a Democratic Party that is largely consumed with foreign indictments against the leading Republican candidate and a Republican Party that's largely consumed with uh, trying to find something on the Democratic candidate for 2024. And we have com complete unanimity. While everyone's fighting, these things provide a fiction of there being two different parties. We're getting complete unanimity on billions of dollars going out the door to fight two wars. I mean, look, obviously there are more important issues like the ones you raised, um, I, I don't think that should preclude or get in the way of um, Congress looking into serious accusations. And there is a lot to be suspicious of and concerned about with respect to Hunter. Now, I think, in fairness, and I try to be objective, I think the wrongdoing involving Joe Biden's brother has not really been the, the same level of, we haven't cleared a bar of reasonable suspicion hmm. to the same degree. Uh, I mean, Hunter is their suspicion due to the work he was employed to do while Biden was vice president. He was employed as essentially a, a, a lobbying figure um, by Chinese and Ukrainian interests. And Joe Biden did have control over Ukraine-related policy. They paid him. They lowered his salary when Joe Biden was no longer vice president. Be probably because they did not see that mm -hmm. as a worthy contact anymore. And then most suspiciously, and, and then of course there's the 
you know, all the um, our dissatisfaction and the dissatisfaction many conservatives have with um, how the matter was investigated by the FBI, by the IRS. And then you have this plea deal, which protected him from any of the more substantive inquiry in the future that we were hoping might happen, that even the judge rolled their eyes at. So that is, so on the Hunter end, yes, we want to continue to look at this and go through this. But merely a loan repayment from his brother, who is not really under the same shadow of doubt, I don't think it really matters. You've made— Is that fair? Sh sure. I mean, you, you've made the argument in the past that uh, Trump election denialism, which is obviously the subject of two of the indictments against him, mm -hmm. doesn't play well in an electoral context. Um, the uh, one six truthers didn't do well in midterms. Uh, that Republicans do better to just pretend that's not going on and downplay it, at least when they're actually running for office around the country. And Democrats understanding that want to continue to focus on election denialism. Do you, do you see Republicans, is there any evidence from ads that are being run so far, successfully exploiting concerns around Joe Biden's corruption in the same way that Democrats have been exploiting concerns around Donald Trump's corruption? Well, I think it's a little different. I think they, I, I think Republicans, it's more a matter of um, keeping faith with their base. Republicans. Uh, the, the very the MAGA Republicans who ran for office and were elected pledged to investigate this matter. And while I think, you know, not not do it all the Trump the uh, election related stuff is very bad electorally. Um, if you don't if you don't look at, if you promise to look into the Hunter Biden man, matter seriously and then you don't, there's going to be a lot of it, it's one it's one of those another example of the Republican Party letting down its own voters, letting down its own base. And I don't think they can be perceived to do that. They yeah, have to take this matter in, seriously. Looking into it and coming out of it with a head on a pike are not exactly the same things, right? I mean, this is like Letitia James. The argument is she ran on, you know, prosecuting Trump. It's a, it's a political prosecution. It's not fair. It's not meritorious. It's wrong for her to do that. You know, I think that that's a legitimate argument. Mm -hmm. The idea that she should, if she ran on investigating Trump, seeing if there was any wrongdoing and then making a decision one way or another when you see the facts, I think that's a more credible way to go about it. And I, and I do think she's discovered wrongdoing, no matter how kind of petty and de minimis it is in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of crimes, in the grand scheme of things that even Donald Trump has done. But like, there is something that feels like a, like a, like a not nice parallel between those well, two cases of Republicans doing the same thing, and are they just not going to stop until they have some kind of trophy, because otherwise it looks like they yeah. have erred. But, I mean, Democrats are not going to stop either, right? There's no—the the sides couldn't come to a deal where, like, we're going to stop looking too closely at the Hunter Biden matter, and you're going to back off Trump on some of these legal—like, that. that's, that's not going to happen. I mean, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's mean, not even—like, the teams aren't, here's a person who's, who can make that deal on behalf of the Democratic side, right? Because the various attorneys general are going to pursue whatever the they're doing. And more... also, I'm not sure from a libertarian standpoint I would even want that, because ultimately these are government officials, and I want them subjected to the highest level—they're political yeah, figures, sure. and they should be subjected to the highest level of scrutiny. So that's how we get to all sides bad, all, all government actors acting outside of the interests of the yeah. American people, focusing on things that don't matter, and that's how you have the public broadly detached and disaffected from the processes of government. I don't know. This this does. I mean, they could be they could be detached and disaffected by political figures, you know, lying and cheating and stealing with impunity and nobody doing anything about it. 
yeah, these are these seem to be our options. Criminals who are prosecuted, well, criminals who are not prosecuted. I mean, it's easy, right? It's easy to say. <laughs> People should only be prosecuted when it's totally legitimate and fair and all above board. And you know the, the people I think are bad are being subjected to fair prosecutions. And people I don't like are crooks and swindlers, and they should get the book thrown against. You know what I mean? It's just the end of the day. That's no, well, then that's politics. Real... Then you vote for the side no. you think is right, okay. and they're going to pursue the other side. I'm just saying that there are more meritorious prosecutions. I think that the one six prosecutions are meritorious prosecutions. I think investigating. Uh, any involvement with war crimes that Joe Biden might have been a part of when he was vice president, or frankly now, would be a more useful prosecution. It's not that I'm against mm -hmm. the idea of doing it. It's just, are we doing ones that are about the interests of the Democratic Party and being able to say, oh, look, Donald Trump lied about the size of his apartment, fee, yeah. fee on him? Or are they doing ones that actually make Americans safer, make our military more accountable, make our politicians more accountable, going after tax cheats and millionaires and billionaires, the kinds of things that would actually benefit the public? That's all I'm saying. But, you know, you get the drift. Let us know what you think about these. And are you hopeful that something is going to come out of this particular prosecution with the Joe Biden uh, crime family? <laughs> They're called. Stick around. We're rising for you right after this. Does Bernie Sanders have a new bro? It looks more like Dems are rallying together against President Joe Biden again ahead of 2024. Minnesota Congressman and 2024 Democratic presidential candidate Dean Phillips took to X yesterday writing, I have an apology to make to Bernie Sanders. I had long dismissed his complaints about the rigged Democratic Party primary system, but you know what? He was right, and I apologize. Bernie, voter suppression, New Hampshire candidate suppression, ballot access, and debate suppression. None. If you're among the majority of Democrats who want to change, please go to Dean24.com and help us create change. Dean Phillips also came for Biden following Tuesday's countrywide elections. He wrote, want evidence of the disconnect between the D.C. political industrial complex and X and the exhausted majority of Americans? In an exit poll of Ohioans who voted to make abortion and cannabis legal, only 25 percent said that Joe Biden should run for re-election. Well, this uh, has to be um, a welcome admission in, in your view as a former Bernie Sanders staffer to see someone admit that he was right about the suppression? No, figuring this out only now when it personally benefits you is just an admission of how selfish, craven, um, indifferent to the millions of people across the country who were joined together in a movement for universal health care, a living wage, a housing as a human right, um, fighting for their actual survival for those two candidacies of Bernie Sanders. He didn't care enough to inquire as to why so many people would have been motivated to make a socialist the second most viable candidate in the race, someone who came out of nowhere to almost beat Hillary Clinton and get 44% uh, of the vote in 2016. But I guess now that it impacts him, he's figured it out, he's seen the light, God bless. <laughs> I would just take the win, but we're different people. Um, How is it a win? It doesn't. It's very easy. When people start agreeing no, with you, you say no. It's Thank very. You. It's You're very right. easy to compliment someone when they're out of power and when there's no implications. We see this every time when there's not a Democrat in the White House. When Democrats don't have the chambers of Congress, what do we see? A lot of big, bold speechifying from the progressives in Congress who talk about we want we need a minimum wage, we need a Medicare for all, uh, we need to fight. It's all Trump's fault. It's all the Republicans' fault. Then the second there's no account, there's no way to offshore blame on the Republican Party. Have you heard a peep from any of those progressives about? 
any of those issues that they said were life and death issues when Trump was in office? Have you seen AOC crying at the border well, wall? I don't think he said it was a Biden progressive was in and that he agrees with every single Biden or uh, Bernie policy under the sun, just that Bernie was mistreated by the process right. and now it's wrong. Right. And there were stakes to making that kind of a claim in prior election cycles. There's no stakes for anyone but him to make that argument now. And so it's a self-interested admission. And I won't do very much with that. I can't do very much with that because we'll see how much integrity he has when it's not him and his All own right, personal Phillips, campaign. All right, your apology has been entirely rejected. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if Go he continues to advocate for third-party candidates and independent candidates and non-establishment candidates in an election cycle that he's not in when he's going to get flagged from the Democratic Party that he's a member for, for, of by saying perhaps that whatever the chosen nominee is in four or eight 16 years shouldn't be the chosen nominee. So you were saying, uh, you know, that he's a he is a pretty generic Democrat. Generic Democrat is actually polling really well right now versus Trump as opposed to Joe Biden. Um, I guess the question becomes then, you know, if it, is there any possibility that he can make his case at a time where there is some real interest in the media and other, you know, political figures are starting to ask questions. Even former Biden people like David Axelrod are starting to speculate about, man, are our, are our chances, are our hopes of reelecting a Democrat totally sunk because they're tethered to Joe Biden? There is somebody else in the race. Well, there have long been other people in the race. And for all that, that the mainstream media is willing to say the, the words, Dean Phillips, he's still polling behind Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson just got some of her best polling results Ever this week, uh, with 13% of the vote, Dean Phillips is behind her at 10% of the vote, and he's had the benefit of getting a little bit of the rounds on mainstream television. As much as he's complaining about being shut out of the process, I haven't heard him. I didn't hear him at one point during this Democratic primary advocating for folks like Marion Williamson or. RFK Jr., when he was a Democratic primary candidate, getting shut out of debates, getting shut out of polling, getting shut out of the national conversation, and only getting as much daylight as he got because there were alternative media sources that were willing to platform him. So again, it's hypocrisy. And it's, it's hard for me to give this any credit. Is he going to reach out and say, Marianne Williamson and I should have a debate? We're going to debate each other. We're going to pressure the that mainstream news sources to give us a town yeah. hall, to give us a platform. No, he's going to act. I, I suspect he and the Democratic Party are going to continue to act like he's the only person running against Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. Yeah, it would be very beneficial for them to do just that, to have some kind of town hall or debate thing. They can invite Joe Biden. He won't show up. Um, that would be a great thing to do. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of the fact that Marianne Williamson has managed to improve her numbers despite being largely absent from the media sphere, I think not by her own doing. I know that she's spending a lot of time in New Hampshire, which is a state where Joe Biden is not going to be well, on she, the ballot. Until Dean Phillips got in. in. In the period between RFK Jr. exiting and Dean Phillips coming in, she was the lone challenger for a while. So if there is just a I'm a Democrat and I'm voting for a Democrat, but I don't want Joe Biden. I want whoever the alternative is to Joe Biden. She, you know, that vote was split for a little while and then it was not split anymore. So she might have picked up some RFK people who do want to support a Democrat um, or just non-Biden voting people. Um, you think there are a lot of uh, RFK to Mary Williamson voters? I mean, that, that's possibly. I mean, maybe, I don't know if there's a lot of them. I think that, well, what do, what do you think it is? You, I, I mean, I haven't seen her... Um, and it's not her fault. Obviously, she gets shut out of the media, and that's a problem. You know, we have her on the show. We can have her on again. Um, 
you know, want to give uh, viewers, voters, a chance to hear from her, absolutely. Um, I like a lot of what she has to say on foreign policy um, compared to other Democrats and other Republicans, frankly. So I'm always happy to hear from her and have uh, people give her a chance. But I don't, I don't know if, I don't know that she's really been, I haven't seen her on TV a lot lately, so I don't know that she's suddenly raking in more support because of some big moment she had or policy she articulated, but you could tell me I'm wrong. Uh, I don't think it's because of stumping on TV, but I do think it's because of stumping in real life. Like I said, she's been on the campaign trail uh, quite a bit, spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. And she's also spent a lot of time doing alternative media interviews. Uh, Elon Musk never followed through on his commitment to give a platform to all candidates in the race. He flatly uh, reneged on that promise, um, lied, if you will. And so she hasn't been able to take advantage of the huge platform of Twitter that he granted to RFK Jr and to uh, Ron DeSantis. However, she has been doing a circuit of lefty programs, and she has been on the ground in these states in really meaningful ways, and on Twitter, sorry, on TikTok, the app that uh, the Republican field apparently wants to ban because they think that the opinions on there are insufferable. Well, they don't like the opinions on there because those are the opinions of young people. I, I suspect she has and, won over some RFK people. Well, I just for, want to wrap, wrap this up if I yeah. can. Uh, this point I'm making about young people. She's doing extremely well with young people, and she is very, very prominent and present on TikTok. The 18 to 25, in the 18 to 25 uh, voting bracket, she's at 35.5% of the vote. So, you know, obviously that's a, a voting well, cohort that doesn't... That's what China wants you to think. <laughs> that's a voting cohort that doesn't vote as much, but it's also a voting cohort that really feels like the American dream has failed them. The generation ahead of that, our generation, was the first to not do as well as their parents. Something, by the way, that was a very controversial topic of conversation on The View yesterday with Whoopi Goldberg taking the stance that millennials have absolutely nothing to complain about, and every single generation has been exactly the same, statistics be damned. Um, but that's not true. And I do think that you're seeing, with younger voters, a desire for a break from the status quo. Yeah. Um, just to—I I do suspect—I mean, RFK Jr. Law has lost, I think, some staff members who are mm -hmm. progressives, including Dennis Kucinich, his campaign manager, someone with a long history of progressive. I don't know where a Dennis— I can't assert exactly where a Dennis Kucinich person goes next, but if you were supporting RFK Jr. from a Dennis Kucinich-like perspective, you might be going to Cornell West or Marianne Williamson as a consequence. So there probably are some voters like that. Well, look, we don't know exactly why. I did talk to um, Chris Hedges, a journalist, uh, a leftist, a professor, uh, Princeton, about this on my show uh, earlier this week. He's friends with Dennis Kucinich and recently did an interview with him and didn't want to portray, you know, he didn't want to speak on his behalf. But the order of events, the timing of it, Dennis Kucinich leaving right after uh, RFK Jr.'s remarks post-October 7th, in Dennis Kucinich's long record of being a strong advocate for Palestinian rights, one can draw some inferences about that being a tipping point with his campaign. I think that the question that remains, you know, needs to be answered still is, given that RFK Jr. has always had that approach to Israel, why it was palatable for him to work for that campaign only, like, all the way up until October 7th. Mm. What? Was it just too front of mind, the issue of Israel-Palestine after October 7th, to ignore it and work for him because of the other aspects of his policy platform that you supported? Maybe it was completely something else. But RFK Jr. has lost the support of Dennis Kucinich, but I think that a lot of voters who didn't really care about this issue throughout never supported RFK Jr., or at least broke with him when he started saying a bunch of kind of APAC-themed statements uh, about Israel over the summer. More rising right after this.
former President Donald Trump has said yes, he would in fact consider former Fox News host Tucker Carlson as a potential running mate in 2024. He said this while being interviewed on the Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show. Let's listen. Would you consider Tucker Carlson on your VP list? Oh, I, wow. want to give, I want to give you a hypothetical here. You're a big sports fan. You know, like Nick Saban's going to retire at some point. And if you talk to the athletic director at Alabama, he would say he has a list. So would Tucker Carlson be on your list of potential VPs? And how many names might be on that list as you sit and look and survey the political field? Well, first of all, you know, I did my first, uh, you could call it counter-programming, but I, I won't call it that. But uh, Tucker wanted to do an interview during the first debate. And I think you know, because this is what your business is, we broke every record. Monster audience. In history, yeah. I think it just hit over 300 million people. But it was for that evening, over 207 million. It then got to 275 within a day or two. And the biggest ever was Oprah's interview with Michael Jackson, which was 125 million. So we almost doubled it. Now, who would have thought that was going to happen? The debate, the last debate they had, had the lowest audience in the history of presidential debates. I don't know if you know it. And I think the one tonight is not, it's on tonight. And yeah. I don't even talk about it. Would you consider it's, it's Tucker, though, that they, based on the I numbers? like Tucker a lot. I guess I would. I think I'd say I would because he's got great common sense. You know, when they say that you guys are conservative or I'm conservative, it's not that we're conservative. We have common sense. We want to have safe borders. We want to have a wall because walls work. You know what Ron, I used to say about walls? I'd say wheels and walls. Everything changes. Uh, the computer. So that got some pickup um, online yesterday by conservatives. Uh, Trump saying that he would potentially name Tucker as his running mate. To be clear, Tucker has never expressed any interest in running or in as, mm -hmm. a running, as running mate or running for president. He, in fact, he specifically said that he would not do that. He will never do that. He's totally opposed to doing that. People keep floating his name on his behalf. Mm -hmm. um, he does not have any interest in it, but uh, they float his name on behalf because they think he's an interesting figure. And, um, you know, despite once saying that he hates Trump passionately, he has interviewed him uh, on his show. And uh, it, it did by, by, by the numbers Trump's Citing now, of course, they're not exact comparisons because Twitter counts every time you happen to scroll past the video, depending on how long you watched it. Um, it's still and if you have, have the most numbers. followed Twitter account on Twitter, like Elon Musk retweeting your videos, then you're going to get a lot of pickup. A lot of eyes are going to well, scroll I mean, past that's fair. it. That's all. That's all fair. Um, I do think it's interesting that the host there put Trump in this weird position because we disagreed about this a little bit, but watching the counter-programming after the first debate, I did I did see some tension. I did detect some tension between them. I don't, you know, Trump is not someone who forgives easily or ever and who has a very long memory, who seems to be able to recall bizarre slights from the 1980s, often to great comedic effect. And so the idea that he would have forgotten that Tucker Carl Carlton said that he hates him passionately in the uh, Dominion lawsuit disclosure. Yeah, I don't think he holds it against him, but they seem to have made up just fine. Um, I, I think... Trump understands that that was frustration given, this, given the situation going on, and Tucker's still on board with what Trump was trying to do with the Republican Party. But that's not me with any insider knowledge. I'm just, maybe I'm just projecting. Tucker's a smart guy, and I think he is savvy and a savvy business person and knows what side of uh, mm -hmm. where, where his bread is buttered. And I, you know, obviously they've made some kind of amends and have come to a detente. 
Trump's personality is not a forgive and forget kind of personality. Well, also, Wait. he's not going to pick someone who could potentially, over, not that anyone can easily overshadow him, but he's going to want... Um, he wants a he wants a booster, sure, though, right? He, he wants a right. But even I was, I was uh, another example of this is that he made up with Megyn Kelly, and even in his interview where he was making up had made up with Megyn Kelly, I have to remember saying that she was asking him bad debate questions in his view because she was on her period or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, he made an allusion to it. He made a little bit of even even in their makeup chat, he tends to be a little bit. Provocative. Mm -hmm. um, it's not what I think most of us would perceive as kind of genuine apologies. It's more like you bent the knee, you kissed the ring, we can move forward. I've forgiven, but I've not forgotten. That that seems to be his mo. And I'm not saying that to like diss him or anything. I'm just I'm just reading between the lines of his reluctance to say, yeah, Tucker Carlson would be a great running mate. Yeah, Trump has floated all kinds of people as his running mate. He loves the kind of fantastical, magical thinking. You know, he's still in his head, obviously, in some kind of ratings race with Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> like, this is this is a guy who likes a big headline. Uh, and I, I think a world where he didn't have some of these personal issues, and maybe the concerns about being overshadowed by Tucker Carlson, he would be ha happy to just entertain that kind of a lark. Yeah. So, you know. It, speaking, uh, speaking of Megyn Kelly, yeah. um, it was just announced this morning that uh, News Nation, which uh, is a sister brother channel, I don't know what gender the channel is, uh, to us at the Hill, we have the same parent company, Nexstar. They will be hosting um, the next debate on December 6th, and actually Megyn Kelly will be the one of the moderators, along with um, Elizabeth Vargas, who hosts a uh, news program on News Nation, and also Eliana Johnson, who's editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Trump obviously will not be attending that debate, or we don't have any reason to think he will be attending that debate, so not an opportunity for a Trump-Megyn Kelly rematch, um, sadly. <laughs> well, they're friends but, now. Uh, and I think the word you were looking for was nibbling. That's the gender-neutral word for sibling, for a brother or sister. What? <laughs> nibbling. Say that again? I thought you'd like that. Nibbling? Another Trump news. The former president's daughter, uh, had Ivanka Trump, testified yesterday in the New York civil fraud trial against her father, during which Attorney General Letitia James focused on alleged loan negotiations involving Deutsche Bank and Ivanka distanced herself from her apartment's valuation on Donald Trump's financial statement, according to CNN. Letitia James said in a statement, Ivanka Trump was cordial, she was disciplined, she was controlled, and she was very courteous, but her testimony raises questions with regards to the credibility. The reality is that, based on the evidence, the documentary evidence, she clearly was involved in negotiating, securing loans, favorable loans for the benefit of the Trump Organization, for Mr. Trump and her brothers, and for herself. Yeah, I mean, Ivanka said basically as soon as uh, Trump was out of office uh, that she wants no more part of this. She's living her life. I yeah. think she's wanting to go back to being a fashion mogul and she wants to go back to not New York being life. And yeah, look, they were all liberal Hillary Clinton donors before her father ran for president. Her father was a Hillary Clinton donor before he her ran. Her husband for Jared Kushner was a Democrat. Yes, yes, and, and, and continued to be a Democrat throughout his vast po uh, policy powers he had over the administration. And uh, I mean, that's a criticism a lot of conservative Trump supporters have of that things went wrong from the very beginning when they put Ivanka and Jared Kushner, two Democrats, in charge of. Um, in charge of economic and foreign policy. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
she used to be a part of in a world where she and her husband and her brother-in-law and his model wife, uh, yeah. Carly, her and her, Car Carly, wait, her and her Carly nibblings, <laughs> her and her nibblings. Yes, yes Robbie. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. They used to be able to all go out together <laughs> and go to fashion parties and have a wonderful, good old time mm -hmm. in their hometown of New York City. And I suspect that they're not as welcome around the Thanksgiving table. I remember in one of the debates between Hillary and Trump, the moderator, I can't remember who it was, it might have been Jake Tapper, I, I don't remember, challenged each of them to say something nice about the other person, mm -hmm. and Hillary said, well, I like his children, mm -hmm. <laughs> which shows because they had a friendship with yeah. uh, Chelsea Clinton. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I think Trump said that he respects that she's such a fighter, she's not, uh, not letting this go easily, the whole election I remember thing. that debate. Yeah. Oh, I think they started walking around each other that, in a funny That was way. the one. I think it was, I think it was on... I don't know why I remember this. Canadian Thanksgiving. I was at a I was at a big I couldn't party pick a like day. a friend's house. Is it does Canadian Thanksgiving happen near? It's in October. It's like a month before ours, I think. All right. And it uh, was an interesting experience watching that debate with a bunch of Canadians uh, looking at our politics through their lens. Mm. And seeing two not very good options battle to rule <laughs> the uh, strongest, in, wealthiest country on the in the planet. South Park. Donald Trump overthrows the government of Canada and becomes president of Canada. That's, that was the plot line that they chose there. So maybe they have a special fear of that taking place. They can have them. <laughs> More rising right after this. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us over. Thank you. You're very welcome. How are you? We're to see you. Good so far. U.S. Good Secretary business. of Transportation Pete Buttigieg met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in the war-torn nation Ukraine yesterday, where he reportedly discussed how to return it to self-sufficiency in support of investments in transportation infrastructure. Meanwhile, on Monday, Zelensky announced that he is canceling Ukraine's elections, which were scheduled to take place next spring the end of his five-year term, citing the ongoing war with Russia, saying it is, quote, not the right time for elections. He further added that now is the time for battle. Former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard weighed in on Zelensky's latest move to keep elections there from taking place. Take a look. In Ukraine, President Zelensky has already taken complete control of the media. He has outlawed his political opposition parties, and he has banned the second largest Orthodox Christian church. That wasn't enough. Now, in his latest edict, he declared that he's canceling the presidential elections altogether. Now, President Biden claims his mission is to defend democracies and defeat autocracies. But he continues to take money out of our pockets to underwrite a war of one corrupt autocracy, Ukraine, against another, Russia. So the real reason Zelensky has outlawed elections is to stop any who dare to criticize the rampant corruption in Ukraine or the war. I mean, I just got to say, it is a little trippy to hear Tulsi Gabbard say Zelensky is bad for bombing an Orthodox church, for doing something anti-democratic like uh, uh, canceling elections, for infringing on the free speech of people in Ukraine, and to hear her so zealously defend Israel, who has killed dozens of journalists, who bombed an Orthodox church. Uh, who hasn't exactly been the bastion of democracy, given it's an apartheid system for Palestinians living in the country. That, that's neither here nor there. But it is really interesting to see. It, it's such an, interest, an exact almost parallel there. But to see her uh, react so differently to those two instances is remarkable. I don't think she's wrong, however, in her critique of Zelensky. No. Um, 
canceling elections. Um, Democrats say that there's nothing more uh, prized than our democracy, and democracy is at stake, and that's the whole case against Donald Trump. And now we have someone who is in the political figure we're supporting, who's in the midst of a crisis and is saying there will be no votes, and has already taken the actions that Tulsi outlined there, the, the suspending of independent media and of the rival political party, um, governing in a wholly illiberal way at a time where we are trying to pretend like the fate of, of the liberal West, of Enlightenment values, hinges on Ukraine keeping control of the Russian-speaking part of its country. That's really what's actually at stake. It's not the existential survival of the Ukrainian people or even, or even of Zelensky's government. It's, it's, it's a territorial dispute that, is, that predates this conflict, um, that that's what Russia's pursuing. And I—so I tweeted last night at the time where Zelensky was coming in for, for a lot of criticism from Vivek Ramaswamy, who— was saying a lot of the things Tulsi just said there about we should not be funding this, this is a waste of our money, this is not going well, this is not important for U.S. foreign policy. And I, I agree with that. I, I tweeted that the war is clearly lost, that Zelensky's advisors know it. No, they're telling him that behind the scenes. The media is finally begrudgingly admitting that that is the case. That Time magazine profile, which was trying to be very flattering towards Zelensky, does concede that it's not going well. And and obviously, Republican—probably many Democrats as well—probably many of the American people don't think this is worth it and is going well. The people know. Everybody knows. So I just—I tweeted that it's obviously lost. And then some people responded saying, I don't know how you can say it's lost. It's—at at worst, it's a stalemate. I'm like, okay, that's fair. It is a stalemate. But the— the conditions of the stalemate, Russia is occupying part of Ukraine, right? The stalemate, you can call it a stalemate if you want, but the situation is not going to be resolved and broken by Ukraine forcing Russia out of those territories. And Russia has said that their goal is not to take over the entire country. So I guess it's a stalemate, but it's a stalemate in the conditions that Russia wants. So when are we going to negotiate over that basic fact? It's, it's remarkable to look back at the propaganda that was used to justify it really engagement is. in the first place. Remember when everyone was screaming that Putin was a madman who was intent on reconstituting the USSR and conquering half of Europe? Yes, I do remember. Remember when the West thwarted peace agreements that were being negotiated a month out of yeah, this conflict? Yeah, David Sachs talked about that on our show, on our interview with him the other day. People should look at that. That was really good. No, and, and you've brought that up. Yeah, but yeah. before half a million people died, before yeah. half a million— People, Zelensky is now— On both sides. War's awful. Zelensky is now struggling to recruit more young people, conscript young people into this war, killing off all—like an entire—not you know, an entire generation, but like all of these people in this young generation in Ukraine. For what? Yeah. And now they're in a worse negotiating position than they were back then. Remember when we were told—I mean, th those of us who with consciences and who had, you know, decided to look even a little bit into the roots of the conflict— wanted at that time to talk about the fact that this was a Russian-speaking yeah. region in dispute where there was some ambivalence. There was, it's up yeah. in the air how that region, if they had self-determination, right. how they would right. vote. The, the for what is the self-determination of a group of people. And, and obviously, we don't—even from the Western liberal perspective, no one—people don't take the view that a nation can never— move its borders or reconstitute or have people break away. And the whole point of the Minsk agreements was in part, well, part of it was allowing the people in, uh, in the Donbass to have self-determination and have a vote to see what kind of 
economic system, what kind of economic program they wanted to adopt, the Russian-leaning one or the Western-leaning one. And the reason that those some people say that those accords were scuttled, that agreement was scuttled, because it seemed like it was likely that they were going to choose the Russian alignment. They didn't want that. Enter in a court at Victoria Newland in a coup. So all of that was considered to be Putin talking points and something that you could not say. And only now, I almost feel bad for Zelensky. He, you know, when you see him stressed out, wringing his hands, begging to go to Israel so that he can have some relevance on the national stage, you know, America made these commitments to him that they knew that they were not going to fulfill. Yeah, that they were going to fulfill for like a year and a half. Sometime, but not to the on. bitter end. Yeah. America told Clearly him not. that they were going to back him to yeah. the bitter end. And now he committed his, his countrymen's lives to this and is going to end up in a worse position than he would have ended up in in March of 2022. Yes. It only makes sense if you think, and maybe this was what the U.S. was thinking, well, we can just make it hurt for Russia, bleed them a little bit, no matter how many Ukrainians die in the process, and we'll do that until we don't feel like giving them any more weapons or public sentiment shifts enough that we can't afford to do it anymore, and then we'll stop doing it, and then so they'll negotiate along those exact— Russia's doing fine. The ruble is yeah. fine. The Russia yeah. was able to sell its oil elsewhere, and in fact— this conflict has sparked a realignment that further weakens the United States and the dollar. So, and the and the, the Russian opposition, the Wagner Group, they they didn't go through. They weren't able to go through with whatever they were doing, and their leader was assassinated. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that one of the big sticking points of the negotiation. I don't think it's. I just mean I don't think it's made this situation more unstable for Vladimir Putin. Sure. Yeah, it's worth noting that one of the big sticking points of this negotiation was whether or not Ukraine was going to uh, join the EU. And there were people at the time that said, all you have to do is make this commitment. Russia's asking you just to make the commitment that it's not going to be a part of, of, the, of, of NATO, NATO, rather, of NATO, of NATO yeah, rather yeah. And, and it'll it'll all go away. Now we're having an interesting conversation. Just, it was just announced yesterday that a European Union commission is advising that Ukraine should join the EU. I don't know if that's like a compromise position, mm -hmm. if that's going to further provoke Russia in a different sort of a way, or if this is like, fine, join the EU, just don't join NATO. Yeah. Um, but it is fascinating to see that that sort of discourse is still on the table. That seems to be antithetical to actually resolving If they conflict. join the EU, does that mean somebody else in the EU is going to pay for their defense instead of the U.S.? Who wants this responsibility? <laughs> they no, they want the U.S. to have this responsibility. Yeah. And it's time for our friends on the international stage to deal with um, difficult political situations that arise in their region, they yeah. can deal with it. Not everything is our job, and that's clearly what um, American voters feel. They don't want to be on the hook. They don't want to be the policemen yeah, of the world. It's, it's, How many times can they send that political message and just have it ignored? Also, I'm sorry, what's Pete Buttigieg doing there? <laughs> Running for mayor? <laughs> I don't know. Whew. All right, stick around. There's We're no rising. limit to what that guy can take on. <laughs> We're rising after this. This just in, popular leftist feminist news site Jezebel has been shut down effective immediately after its owners failed to find a new buyer. Um, this site was once one of the Gawker Empire sites, um, and then after the legal troubles that Gawker had as a result of a lawsuit from Hulk Hogan that was financed by Peter Thiel. Gawker went down and the assets were sold to other places. And now Jezebel had survived, made it through all of that, but now Jezebel is gone as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm never going to celebrate um, the end of a media enterprise, uh, given how they've been dealing with a really uphill battle um, with funding. There's been a real narrowing of outlets for people mm -hmm. to choose from. We used to have local news that were report, reporting on uh, issues that were germane to localities. We don't have that anymore. We used to have kind of more um, independent blogs that would talk about niche issues. It was a feminist website. And it was very popular for a very long time. Uh, and I used to enjoy it a great deal back in the day when you could get a lot more, I think, fun pop culture content in different places. But you know, I think the Gawker lawsuit that damned uh, Gawker more broadly, and I think started to imperil Jezebel as part of that, demonstrate was because of the kind of overreaches that were happening in some of those areas with respect to posting. Yeah, P posting. I mean, I don't yeah. know, sexual content. Um, yeah, without the permission of the people of making it. Uh, the whole the Hulk Hogan uh, situation was um, uh, was a little more complicated, although he ultimately did uh, prevail. But he was at least a person in the public interest. I mean, they also, not Jezebel, but again, Gawker, or I think it was Deadspin, did they, it was just vile examples of revenge porn. I was looking it up to make sure I wasn't going to slander them because it was so bad in my memory. It is just as bad. Mm. Uh, Deadspin published just video footage of a young woman who is intoxicated at a sports arena having sex in a bathroom stall, and it's like not clear she can even consent. Mm -hmm. And she's not a public person, and there's, there's no public interest in, in this at all. And they published a blurry video of it. And when she begged them, to, oh my God, take this down, they said, like, in, you could see their internal emails, because this came out as a result of the Hulk Hogan lawsuit. And they're just like, blah, 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 she's upset about this. And, um, and they told her to just like, yeah, this will pass. You just have to deal with it. I mean, it's crazy. There was no news value to it whatsoever. Yeah. And there were a couple instances of things like that. Um, so I have. So people, uh, this came to my attention that Jezebel's being shut down. People keep tweeting at me that you must be very happy about this. My like my first brush with internet um, fame was back in 2014 after I um, I wrote an article. Uh, for reason, um, saying that I didn't believe aspects of the the Rolling Stone, your University of Virginia sexual assault story. There was a big, big report in Rolling Stone magazine about UVA and this horrific gang rape that had happened to this woman, and I I criticized it. I didn't believe aspects of it. So then Jezebel, um, let me put it up on screen. I did find it. Jezebel said, wrote about me. It's the UVA rape story, a gigantic hoax, ass idiot. I'm the idiot in question. It's me. I'm named in there. Um, and then this did, this was one of the more satisfying you turn the tables thing when within a few days the Rolling Stone story did completely collapse and it, as, as, it collapsed as dramatically as any story ever has. It turned out the woman, um, Jackie in the story had in fact made it up that the person did not exist. Uh, she knew who he was and they, it was a fake person. She was actually sending texts from a fake account to her friends to make it seem like he existed. It was a, mm. it was a rather out of like extraordinary and unusual, frankly, level of deception that the source, the sole source for the story went through to make it all up, um, which reflects very poorly on Rolling Stone because if they had done very basic things yeah. like ask her friends, Google, look up the guy to see that he actually exists, um, and so on and so forth, it would have quickly emerged that she was crazy and making it up. So, uh, so I did get to have a little bit of a ha-ha moment with Jezebel, and people always, and we're like forever tied or something, because people 
People remember this. They like now ten years later. Well, not, they still they still bring it up to me. Not forever tied because there's no Jezebel anymore. Yeah, now it's over. Um, I did obviously. I you were right that it was a witty publication. It had a lot of smart people who were very incisive and uh, you know holding truth to power a lot of the time, but also just had no. Uh, again, I'm characterizing the broader Gawker universe, not Jezebel specifically. Just had no good judgment or often had bad judgment for newsworthiness and like like when a subject or a target was deserving of of a takedown and when it's like when it was invading people's privacy in a semi like criminal way and the fact that they couldn't tell that apart and were very defiant about it because eventually Nick Denton who was in charge of the whole enterprise um, did start to say, like, okay, I think some of the stuff we're doing here is evil and we can't mm. do it. And the staff revolted. They absolutely, they, half, a bunch of them resigned. Mm. They fought tooth and nail against any, any direction from the guy who invented the whole thing to just say, like, maybe we don't non-consensually post random people's It's a low, it's a low bar. Stuff. So... Yeah, I was trying to remember what I used to like a lot. They, they had a series, it might have been Gawker, I can't remember if it was Gawker or Jezebel, where it was like, uh, they would, it was framed like the best restaurant in New York is, but then they would go to the most random places to eat, like the American Girl Cafe, or like the restaurant at the zoo, or like the UN Dining Hall, like places <laughs> that are not known for their food, um, and take it very seriously, like they were doing a real restaurant, get the doll, sit it next to you, feed it tea, that sort of a thing. And the writers who used to do that column were just they were very funny. They had a lot of smart, funny, young people. And at the time, this was, you know, like 10, 15 years ago, when I was like fresh out of college and blogs were still ascendant and I wasn't like reading the newspaper in the way that I do now to follow politics. I was just interested in reading something interesting about the world. They were really good at doing it. Yeah. And I, I do still feel like that there's a hole that's missing. I used to wake up, come to work, sit at my computer and do like, 15 minutes of Jezebel, like uh, 15 minutes of BuzzFeed, scrolling to see what was going on. And I think a lot of us in our age cohort kind of came up that way. And it's interesting to reflect on how I, I, I don't open the internet for pleasure at all anymore. <laughs> like, well, a big part of the decline of that was uh, is changes that social media and Facebook in particular yeah. has made. The era of, uh, of uh, the massive traffic that BuzzFeed and places like the Huffington Post and mm -hmm. the Gawker Universe and other sites, and then sites on the right started your your Federalists, your Breitbart's, uh, your your Daily Callers, your Daily Wires. Um, sort of figured out also how to thrive specifically on Facebook and then a, as a result of that the media started screaming at Facebook that it was you know that it was it's it's so funny when i hear conservatives complain about social media cuz that's also what like the mainstream media was saying mm -hmm. that Mark Zuckerberg is is elevating these disinformation narratives mm -hmm. on right wing sites and this is how we get Trump and then finally as a result of all this pressure and a variety of other reasons they did they turned down the dial for the news feed and uh, and bankrupted a whole lot of publications uh, including eventually um, this one. Yeah. So. All right. Well, I always hope that the good journalists at these uh, institutions are able to land on their feet. There was a lot of talent there, and I hope they end up somewhere. I do not good. relish anyone losing their jobs. To, <laughs> yeah. to be to be. Clear. Even even the one that wrote the headline uh, calling you an idiot. <laughs> no, I. You know what? I later uh, had drinks with her, and she's yeah. a perfectly fine person. And okay. There's no. There's no hard feelings. <laughs> you love to see it. Good on you, Robbie. <laughs> All right. We're rising after this. Newsmax.
Max reporters caught up with residents of Joe Biden's hometown of Scranton, Pennsylvania, where a rising crew member is also from, and they were left stunned by what they had to say. Let's watch some of that. Scranton, Pennsylvania, outside the childhood home of President Joe Biden. On election day in 2020, he came back here, went inside, and wrote a message on one of the walls that simply said, from this house to the White House. He's up for re-election again in 2024, so we decided to come here to Scranton, his hometown, walk the streets, and ask the people here what they really think about their president. What do you feel about our current president? He's okay. He needs to get the hell out of the White House. He's ruined this country. This country's in a hole. He's pretty much the kind of guy who should be a mirror screen instead of President of the United States. What would you like to see him do moving forward? I don't know. I would like to see him try again with student debt. Uh, I would like to see him work on our healthcare system. Uh, oh, I felt that woman sigh in my bones. <laughs> Meanwhile, President Biden was forced to answer to polling, showing him trailing behind Donald Trump in five of six key swing states. Trump and all these swing state polls. Because you don't read the polls out from there are 10 polls. Eight of them, I'm beating him in those states. Eight of them. You guys only do two. CNN and New York Times. Check it out. Check it out. We'll get you a copy of all those that polls. Okay? You don't believe you're trailing in battleground states? No, I don't. So we're just going with, no, it's not happening. I haven't seen bad polls. I'm not double digits behind the likely Republican nominee in no, these crucial states. But we're, only, but we're only looking at the most recent polls and not the polls from a long <laughs> time ago that showed different things. Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting defense. Um, it's outrageous. I just got to say that... Anybody gets away with those kinds of answers? What? I, I know the journalists have limited time, and sometimes you just have them on the line. And you he can't. should have borrowed Whoopi Goldberg's line that, like, well, which four thousand people was that? <laughs> that <laughs> right. even answered? It's was it people in Scranton? <laughs> I mean, was the reporter not prepared to say these are the most recent polls, or yeah. you know, are you going to do anything differently to try to get those numbers back up because it doesn't give you any concern? There's specific demographic groups that are running from your campaign that have been historically the base of the Democratic Party. What's your message to black Americans? What's your message to Arab Americans? What's your message to Latinos? Nothing? Nothing? Nothing. He just no, turns no, and he pivots has, off. His message to them is read the, the, the older <laughs> polls. Read the other polls that show me ahead. Oh, boy. What did you make of some of those man-on-the-street interviews? You know, you got to be careful with those things because, obviously, like, they just showed us three people and they pick which three people we see. No, and that was America. That was, that was a, a, a perfect no, portrait. No, those were real Americans. Don't don't get me, don't mistake me. Those were real people. Um, and, you know, it calls to mind, who was it, uh, LBJ, who couldn't get, by the end of his presidency, couldn't get, he would get heckled at a rally of mm -hmm. any human being. on. He could only do, like, <laughs> rallies at the military where mm -hmm. they're not allowed to react. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Joe Biden is, is on a historical level, approaching that point of, of, of unfavorability, of unpopularity. And he's, he's likely up against Trump, who's not that popular either. What's, who's not, yeah. a, who's not, it's not like That's he's up against this wildly popular person who people are counting to sweep in and save the day. People, if anything, are going, ugh. <laughs> They're going, ugh, at both. Yeah, I mean, what's, both options. no one was asked, obviously they weren't asking about Donald Trump, but what's interesting is that if you, if you assume that the second person is a conservative, like the enthusiasm for Biden of the other two like the Biden people yeah. is still so 
milk toast. The They're first guy goes, he's okay. <laughs> Which, comedic timing tops. Great stuff there from that guy. And then the, the last one who I'll, I'll call our resident, I'm not really quite a Bernie bro, let's call her a, a, a Warren stand-in. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I mean, the depth of those sighs could uh, fuel a Pavarotti aria. Like, you can, <laughs> the, the, the breath control of that woman, it came from her soul. She clearly wants to root for the guy, but like the first, the first person interviewed, just cannot bring herself to say anything good. Like, try again with student debt. Maybe do something, a little health care, please. <laughs> just a little health care. This is what America's been reduced to. It was a good idea. Good on Newsmax for doing that segment. It was smart. Um, I, I love when they talk to people. I love when they put together those uh, debate watch review panels. Yes. I love the whole Frank Lutz yes. stuff. That's yes. the only way we can learn about anything. Otherwise, we're just sitting here talking. It's part of why I love doing a call-in show, because I would sit down twice a week, and it's not all of America, but it's a cross-section of folks who call in different political backgrounds, they would tell me fascinating things, and I got a sense of how off-base I was about the predictions that I was making on my own podcast. That's why I so enjoy the feedback that I get and that we get uh, <laughs> in the, in the comment comments section. on YouTube and on Twitter and other places, and your emails when you send them. I think it's a little bit of a different, it's not illegitimate, but I think it's a, a different cohort of people, the folks that are engaged. You hear that? Rihanna's calling you different. <laughs> Remember that the next time you're upset. I mean, most people don't have a YouTube account. Yeah. Most people just watch YouTube. Well, to, most people don't live in Scranton. Sure. But to, but to make a comment, you have to have invested enough to like put your email address in and to have registered for an account with YouTube. That, yeah. that, that's a level I mean, that It's a mistake to pretend the internet is real life, but it's also a mistake to pretend the internet doesn't represent it. A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred. You know, it's not a wrong cross-section. Yeah. It's just a... It's a, it's a different cross-section than you find of, of people just out on the street. So I think that it was really valuable. Let us know how much you feel like your opinions were reflected in one of those three individuals. <laughs> I really want to hear more from that second, that second person mm -hmm, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they had to, the one they had to bleep. <laughs> the one they had to bleep. At first, I thought the first person they were talking to, the older gentleman, was, it, was wearing hat. a Trump hat. It was just a red hat. Oh, yeah, I thought so yeah. too. It's a ring. <laughs> yeah, They're yeah, rigging it against yeah. Biden. But no, it's just a guy. <sighs> yeah, I mean, obviously we've been talking about it a lot, and I think we'll continue to do so with Biden's um, numbers. Maybe, okay, fine. Maybe it was a fluke poll. We'll see what the next one says. I don't think so. The trajectory is just so bad, and, and they seem just very in denial about it and very unwilling to take on I, the fact that he's, he's old, and that's a major problem for people. People don't feel like the situation in the country is great. Um, people are now suddenly interested in attaching themselves to Kamala Harris more so than Joe Biden, which is a really wild development, given how unpopular she has been compared to him for so long. There's the expression, the canary in a coal mine, mm -hmm. a warning of bad things to come. If you're at a place where you're saying, well, we've got Kamala, I almost want to call mm -hmm. it a Kamala in a coal mine. Because <laughs> you're you're already dead. <laughs> when you're already talking about, well, maybe Kamala will save us. It's, the it's campaign is DOA. No, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for us today. Yes, it does. It's been a fun week, but tomorrow, Rising will be back with Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey. Actually, she's got a new last name because she just got married. We got to get that fixed. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere that podcasts are available. Um, I was thinking this felt like. It felt like a long week on Tuesday, mm -hmm. but then Thursday got here in kind of a hurry. 
Yeah, you know, time flies when you're having fun, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're ending on a high note, and we will see you very soon. Have a good one, everybody. Ta-ta.